This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Stand of Entertainment Dumpty. Now today and tomorrow, the European Union's chief diplomats, foreign affairs diplomats are meeting to discuss China. Joseph Borrell is Europe's high representative for foreign policy, and he has urged member states, and will do today and tomorrow, to find a coherent strategy to deal with China that responds to both Beijing's rising nationalism and a hardening of the US-China competition and to discuss the implications for China's rise and indeed for a world they envisage where Russia actually doesn't prevail in its conflict with Ukraine, to discuss the implications of that we're joined by Ian Williams. Ian is journalist and author. His most recent book is Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War, and it has been nominated as a finalist for the Orwell Prize for Political Writing, and it is a wonderful book, and Ian has a long and distinguished career as a foreign correspondent in Russia, Southeast Asia, and China, and we're very pleased to welcome him today. Ian, thank you very much for joining us. The EU's attempt to devise a strategy, a coherent strategy that is practical, is interesting and probably very necessary. What's your take on the belief of this Joseph Borrell that Europe needs a strategy and it doesn't necessarily depend on the Ukraine-Russia business? He, in fact, argues at one point that China won't mind if Russia doesn't prevail in that conflict. Well, I think Europe desperately needs a policy on China, a coherent policy on China. Whether or not they can thrash one out in the days ahead is much harder to envision because 
they are being pulled in several different directions. I mean, certainly there's been an enormous wake-up call in Europe, um, both over the power of China, the willingness of China to use its economic muscle uh, to coerce European powers. And of course, the, the, the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has been an, uh, had an enormous impact because it's shown the dangers of over-dependence uh, particularly to the, the, the bigger economies. Uh, but whether or not Europe can take those message, messages on board and turn them into a coherent and meaningful policy is much harder to say. Um, they're being pulled in all sorts of different directions by different member states who have different degrees of dependence upon China and have different views about whether Europe can... Uh, cleave out a, a, a separate policy towards China from that of the United States. Yes, and Burrell's thesis is that China, and I'm quoting him now, China's ambition is clearly to build a new world order with China in its center. A Russian defeat in Ukraine will not derail China's trajectory. China will manage to take geopolitical advantage of it. Does that sort of chime with your perspective on China and what its purpose right now is? I think it does. There's no doubt that China envisages a new world order and it sees itself at the heart of that. Um, I think it is very much that the, the, its relationship with Russia is very much instrumental. Um, it, it's, a, it's a marriage of convenience, if you like. Uh, if you look at the, the conflict in Ukraine, in many ways, China wins whichever way the, the, the outcome goes. Uh, it's benefiting enormously by the ongoing conflict because it's able to uh, buy cheap hydro, hydrocarbons, um, increase its trade, increase its own standing in the relationship so that it is now by far the dominant partner of the two. I think what China would not like is to see the toppling of Putin and his replacement by somebody who is slightly more amenable to the West and less so to China. But at the moment, it certainly sees the conflict in, in Ukraine as being beneficial to its, to its own interests. Now, China's relationship with the United States, obviously it is critical and Anyone who was watching Donald Trump's performance this week, the day after, 24 hours after he was found guilty of sexual assault and indeed of libel and ordered to pay a woman $5 million, he was on CNN in what's called a town hall. The audience was packed with Trump supporters and you can only imagine what that was like. But the numbers around Trump at the moment are startling. He's 40 points ahead in the race, if you can call it that, for the Republican nomination. So seems certain to be the Republican nominee. And in a poll last week, he was six or seven points ahead of Joe Biden in a head-to-head, -head, which is a surprise. But Biden's numbers are dire. And of course, the debt ceiling issue is about to cause more trouble for, for Biden. My, my question really, Ian, or my, the reason I'm asking you this is that if Donald Trump were to be the president after the 2024 presidential election, 
how would that suit China? And how important is it for America to have a coherent policy on China? For the, the latter point, it's incredibly important for the US to have a coherent policy. I think Beijing will be watching the, the rise of, of Trump and his prospects for the election next year very, very closely. Um, and we'll be asking precisely these questions as to what it might mean for the relationship. I think the first time round when Trump was president, uh, China saw his, his volatility, uh, his ability to, as they would see it, weaken America globally as something which was enormously beneficial to them by undermining alliances in a way that China could could only dream of. Yes. Um, at the same time, though, they would have been struck and alarmed by his volatility. Uh, on the one hand, praising Xi, praising um, the Chinese leader as well as other strong men, um, saying he could do business with China. But then, of course, later in his presidency, um, launching a trade war against China, and in fact, possibly doing more to, to raise the profile of, of, of China's behavior international than those pre internationally, the presidents that had gone before him. So they would look at the first term in, in mixed ways. Um, and they will be no doubt trying to calculate what a second Trump term would mean. Uh, and I guess it would come down to balance the inevitable volatility um, against the inevitable and further undermining of, of alliances, which, of course, is central to China's own policy. But certainly, the it could be argued that China would be look, playing the long game and thinking, well, why would they want to come to terms with the Biden administration uh, if there was a strong yes. likelihood of his being replaced by Trump? Yes, and, I mean, part of the conventional wisdom is that Russia decided to move on, on Ukraine and China decided to support that. In fact, just before this happened on February 24th, I think it was, last year, Putin had been to Beijing for the Winter Olympics and had spent a week there with Xi Jinping. Now, the theory appears to be, and China and Russia share it, that Europe is divided the West is divided and weak. It would not be difficult, and this is Putin's gamble, to move on Ukraine. It wouldn't be terribly, well, it would be difficult, but it is simultaneously possible that China would move on Taiwan if they believe the West is weak and divided. Could you argue, Ian, that we were lucky that Joe Biden was president of the United States and came up with an old-fashioned American answer that it would be the world's policeman. He galvanized NATO, he galvanized the European Union and some form of coherence and resistance appeared. If Donald Trump had been president at that moment and if China, for example, was encouraged to move against Taiwan... We're looking at something pretty awful, aren't we? We are, and I think that the the, the thought uh, of of a Trump presidency at that time is quite is quite chilling. The sort of message that would have sent, and of course, there were, I, I think the hangover from the 
Trump presidency uh, impacted upon Russian calculations. Yes. Uh, yesterday, the Kremlin spokesman himself um, admitted as much that they had been surprised by the reaction, by the coherence, by the strength um, of the Western alliance in response to the invasion of Ukraine. They didn't expect that. I think the most they'd anticipated were a few angry words uh, looking back at the the takeover of Crimea, uh, the, the, yes. the civil war sparked in, in, in the east of the country by Russia. And I, I don't think they anticipated at all the sort of reaction that has been and, and there still is. Um, and clearly, China is making those same calculations ov- over Taiwan. Um, it has looked as what's uh, what's happened in Ukraine. It's looked at the Western response, and that's certainly playing into Chinese policy. Um, they are taking measures to try and make their economy more resistant to any sanctions that might come their way. Um, they're also looking militarily uh, at what happened to, to Russian forces in Ukraine. So everybody's trying to take lessons from this, but certainly. Um, I think Biden has to take credit for the way he did galvanize the Western alliance. Although, of course, at at the same time, I think the shock across Europe at seeing this was so profound uh, that, in a sense, it it wasn't difficult to pull that alliance together because of the the depth of the the shock and anger. Now, the Chinese envisage a new world order with themselves taking the lead role rather than, say, America. That sort of aspiration, are we now facing, in your view, Ian, when you take into account the conflict in Ukraine and how long that might take, when you take into account the Donald Trump factor and the isolationism that comes with it and the sense that the United States isn't far from taking an isolationist position and saying we've spent, and they have said they spent enough blood and treasure on foreign wars, whether it's Iraq, Vietnam, or Afghanistan. They don't want to know anymore. What sort of opportunity, should we say, does that present to the Chinese in particular? I think they would see it as a great opportunity uh, if it were to play out in that manner, um, it's what they saw. It's always what they've seen happening. It's always what they predicted, the idea of the decline and the decay of, of Western liberal democracies, yes. um, the introspection of, of um, the United States in particular. But I think one of the key elements of Chinese policy at the moment is to separate Europe from the United States. And this is very much the, the, the focus of, uh, of their efforts, whether this be in courting Emmanuel Macron, yes. um, whether it be in sending Qi Gang to, to Europe just in these last few days to, for meetings in France and, and Germany. There's really a big effort being made on Beijing's part to encourage Europe to take a separate stand from that of the United States to demonstrate strategic independence, as I think the, 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 the buzz term. And I think that the whole Chinese posturing over Ukraine and the suggestion that they can somehow be 
a mediator, a, a peacemaker, which, I mean, in my opinion, doesn't stand up to scrutiny, but it is really designed to play to the wavering Europeans to try and send a message that China really is sincere in, in, in wanting to see a solution to uh, the Ukraine war, while at the same time, of course, doing nothing really of any great substance to to make that come about. But it really is central to to policy at the moment. And I think, to come back to your point, they have one eye on US isolationism, um, not under Biden, but the potential for it in the future. Yes. And the other side of that coin is to try and encourage Europe to take a separate stand, to take a separate focus um, on the world, but on China in particular. Uh, whether that will work, um, we may see over this coming weekend with what emerges from this attempt to, to come up with a coherent policy uh, from the EU. Now, Angela Merkel, in 16 years she was in power, over that time she did develop close relationships with China, principally, I assume, for the reason that trade with China was a big deal for Germany. The British also, when I remembered George Osborne and David Cameron's regime, they also were very interested, were they not, in sort of building peace through trade or building a kind of comfortable relationship through trade and turning a blind eye. First of all, am I right in those assertions? Yeah, I mean, peace through trade is very much a sort of German, um, it's a rough translation of what's been a very uh, prominent policy in, in Germany towards Russia over over the years and, and also towards China. I mean, I think a lot of it is, is, is the whole principle behind the engagement theory that you engage these regimes as obnoxious as they may be, but you engage them because the outcome is better for everybody. Um, you know, you... you improve life within those countries. Prosperity brings liberalism, brings democracy, and you improve the economic benefits globally. That's always been the underpinning of engagement. Does it work? I don't think so. And I think it's been shown that it doesn't work. But certainly Germany was at the forefront of that. And it did also underpin the golden era, the the Osborne Cameron uh, approach to, to, to China. But I, I think it, it's very self-serving, especially on the part of business. And I think it's been proven by what we've seen in Ukraine and China's behavior that, that fundamentally it doesn't work. Yes, and there was a period when it, before Xi Jinping, there were leaders, or a leader in China, who it seemed was keen to go in another direction. Yeah, I mean, we, you could, yes, you, you could. Was that a mirage? Look- <laughs> to some extent, I would say, if you look at pre-Gi, the you know change through trade engagement, uh, you could construct an argument under Hu Jintao or Zheng Zemin that there were periods when the country appeared to be liberalizing and opening. It was usually fo- followed by periods when the door abruptly closed again. Yes, and pri- and primary in all of this were, was the interests of the party. That's always been paramount in, in in Chinese political thinking. The survival of the party is is the ultimate aim. Yes, um, uh, whether that requires a degree of opening, whether it 
requires the door to be slammed shut again. It's always the party which is which is paramount um, in that concern. And under Xi, of course, the party has extended its power and influence into every sphere of life uh, yes. within China, and it's become much, much more claustrophobic place uh, to express for businesses and also a dangerous place to express anything resembling a, a critical opinion of the leader. Is it true, Ian, that initially people thought he might be a reformer and that his father had been a reformer who was a prominent party member? Yeah, I mean, it's astounding when you think about it now. I remember attending uh, when he was first anointed as party leader. I was among those at his first press conference in the Great Hall of the People, and people were... Uh, observers, China watchers, sinologists, journalists were all trying to figure out what this guy stood for uh, because he seemed to be a bit of a, an empty book. He hadn't really done very much, uh, a party functionary who held several top jobs, mainly in the coastal regions. Yeah, And people tr uh, incredibly interpreted him as an inf a reformer without really any great evidence of that, but partly on the record of his father, who was sent to the coastal regions, particularly Guangdong, um, early in the process of economic opening, and, and he, he is frequently described as a reformer. I think that's a slightly overgenerous term, yes. uh, but Xi has certainly tried to, uh, and has been criticized for trying to push his father into the limelight at the expense of, uh, of Deng. Um, and of course, Deng Xiaoping is widely regarded as the, the architect of the reforms. But also, if you look into his history, he was also as big a thug as Mao, Mao Zedong yes. in, uh, uh, in terms of the number of people who, who died and were persecuted on his watch. Um, but certainly Xi has sought to push his father as a symbol of reform at the expense of Deng, which has... Uh, at times upset some of the old guard in the party. Um, but but certainly in those early days when Xi came to power, people were proclaiming him as a possible reformer on the basis of very flimsy evidence. And one element of that ev ev evidence was, uh, was his father. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Now, Ian, we saw in the response to an opening up in Hong Kong what she is capable of doing, and we see in their threatening maneuvers over and around Taiwan also a similar sort of pattern. They will do what they want to do, what they feel they have a right to do. In your view, and you've been there, you've seen them, you know it, are hopes that this kind of friendship could ever develop, that a friendship could ever develop, are they just naive? And what does Europe specifically, and particularly now that Britain is no longer a part of Europe, which seems to me to weaken Europe considerably when it comes to war and stuff, is it wishful thinking? And should we, should Europe prepare for the kind of hard Chinese policy that is reflected in their behavior in Hong Kong and in their threatening maneuvers around Taiwan? I think Europe would be, is extraordinarily foolish if they do not prepare for the worst scenario with, yes. with, with China, because the impact could be more far, would be far more severe than, than the breach with Russia. Um, it's interesting to me that, of, of course, the one country, two systems idea, for which was bandied around for Hong Kong and was effectively trashed in Hong Kong, uh, this was originally invented for Taiwan. Um, and of course, Taiwan wants nothing to do with that anymore. And, and, and it's interesting, I had a conversation recently with uh, Chris Patton, who reminded yes, me... Yes, he was the man who signed off on this for Margaret Thatcher. Exactly. And, and he, he, he recounted his early conversations with Chinese leaders when he was trying to push through an element of democratic reform in Hong Kong rather belatedly. Um, but the Chinese interrupting him and saying, look, you know, I'm sorry, this has got, this has got, what's this got to do with the Hong Kong people? Yes. This is between you and I. Yes. And they, and China takes much the same attitude towards Taiwan that the future of Taiwan has nothing to do with the Taiwanese people, 23 million Taiwanese people who run a very successful democracy and whose opinions and views would need to be heard if Taiwan were ever in the unlikely position of choosing a political relationship with the mainland. But to go back to your point, I, I really think that, um, that, that Europe has to prepare for a, a deeper breach with China. Um, and I think at the moment that 
any business which is not looking to hedge its bets on China, if not reduce its exposure to China, is bonkers. And 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 I the the conversations that I have with business people suggest to me that most are now examining the the degree of the degree of dependency upon China. Yes, but very few will say so publicly because they know how vindictive and vengeful the Communist Party can be, and how potentially damaging it would be to their business interests to even hint that they may be less than committed to China. Yes, and so you see all this sort of shadow boxing going on, um, which means you cannot really take very much that businesses say at face value. And I think you also see it in some of the statements coming out from from politicians. I mean, James Cleverly's statement just the other day on China, when he devoted his, his entire speech to China, uh, was. Uh, interesting. I mean, it was multifaceted, and and he was trying to satisfy all sorts of different constituents within the Conservative Party. Um, fundamentally, it made no sense because it was inherently contradictory. Uh, and this is the problem I think the EU are facing, that it's hard to say, well, we're going to be more robust on China when it comes to human rights, strategic I- issues, Thai- behavior around Taiwan but also saying that we need to engage economically and talk to them about the big issues of the world like pandemics and climate change. And the reason for that is because China uses economics, investment, trade, market access as tools of coercion, as we've seen with, with, with Lithuania. And while it's also true to say that we need Chinese help, uh, China needs to be proactive on climate change, on pandemic, there is no sign at all that, that Xi Jinping is at all interested in engaging on either. Um, quite the contrary. Uh, and, and so it does mean crafting a coherent policy is difficult, especially when you look across Europe and see the, the, the range of views uh, yes. upon China. Just let me ask you a final question, Ian, about the prospect of an isolationist United States, which, when you look at the whole picture, seems increasingly possible, shall we say, if not likely. Where does that leave Europe in relation to the big geopolitical picture that she refers to, the the changes that are coming? It leaves Europe in desperate need of a Co- coherent policy. Yes, it needs Europe in, in desperate need of a, a policy in itself, but also as a way of exerting its own influence, uh, moral, economic, on the United States. I think as long as Europe looks uh, incoherent, as long as it looks like it's lacking uh, a, a unity and purpose uh, in dealing with China it perhaps feeds more into that isolationism in the United States. And I think that a coherent European policy on China is not only needed in itself for the sake of Europe, but also to enhance the European voice in dealing with the United States, in dealing with the alliance um, towards authoritarian countries. Um, Because if you do accept broadly that uh, and I think few people did early on, but it looks like it's developing this way, autocracy versus uh, yes. democracy. Um, 
with the behavior of Iran, Russia, China. I think increasingly, if if Europe wants to play its role as a key part of the liberal democratic world, then it needs its own coherent policy uh, to give it weight within that or greater weight within that alliance. Okay, and we're very grateful to you for joining us today. Ian Williams is a very distinguished journalist. He's won an Emmy and a BAFTA for work he's done, and he currently is on the shortlist for the Orwell Prize for political writing for his book, The Fire of the Dragon, China's New Cold War. That's Ian Williams. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks to all of our listeners. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon.